the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. All right, so we are in Matthew 17. Uh, Let's see. In Matthew 17, we've learned that the priests are, uh, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're after Jesus. They've decided that Jesus now is a threat to them. And uh, so that's what they're going to do. Jesus uh, now, though, is going to, uh, we're going to have a great day today um, because, uh, well, it's the transfiguration. That's that's what today is, is the transfiguration. So we'll just go right into it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, if you'll remember, James and John are the sons of Zacchaeus, right? The sons of thunder. That's James and John. Then you have Peter and his brother, Andrew. Those four were out fishing, and those are the four that Jesus called to be with him. And now we see that Peter, James, and John are kind of like Jesus' inner close circle. So the other disciples are still around him and some of the crowd is still around him. But for whatever reason, Jesus decides to take Peter, James, and John up onto the mountaintop to pray uh, and to be with Jesus. And so that's that's where we are. Um, So they're gonna go up to the mountain and something exciting is gonna happen on the top of the mountain. Here we go. And there he was transfigured before him, before them. His face shone like the sun His clothes became white as the light, and just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter comes up to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Peter, James, and John go up. And then Jesus shines like a bright cloud. The cloud descends and a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You have Moses, you have Elijah. It must have been one of the most amazing, incredible scenes. As a matter of fact, uh, this is considered to be uh, one of the major, major events of Jesus. You have the birth of Jesus. You have the coming of the wise men of Jesus. You have the baptism of Jesus. And then you have this transfiguration of Jesus. And when he goes up to the mountaintop, there's God's glory that comes and descends upon him and he's shining bright. Uh, And then he goes uh, and he has the the crucifixion and then there's a resurrection. So, I mean, this is one of the big moments of Jesus. And uh, the church 
has always seen this as a big moment of Jesus. What's interesting, so we're in the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of the, what we call the synoptic gospels, uh, and they're called synoptic because they have all the same stories, maybe a few are different, uh, and maybe in the order of them is a bit different, but the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all almost seem like they were memorized at some point, and that these were the memorized stories of Jesus. Because you have to remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't just immediately written. Like Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and, and, the, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all of a sudden started writing their Gospels. No, the stories that were told about Jesus were a compilation of oral histories about Jesus, and they spread throughout the people without them being written down. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of take those oral stories and put them in different orders, but they're pretty much the same oral stories. But then you have the Gospel of John. John's different. Remember, John wrote the Gospel, his Gospel, much, 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 much later in life. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written kind of early, John was written kind of late. So even when the time John writes his Gospel, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what is interesting is John's gospel is totally, totally different. Um, it, it looks at the life of Jesus more of in his glory. It looks more of the life of Jesus uh, as the word become flesh, as God become flesh. Whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're, you're learning this story and this narrative about Jesus being the Messiah and how that all comes together. By the time John writes his gospel, he, from the very, very moment, in the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and God became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, that's basically, uh, that's basically the outline of John. And the reason why I'm saying all this is because in John's Gospel, he doesn't necessarily have all the stories, like he doesn't have the Last Supper is not in John's Gospel. And uh, this transfiguration is not in John's Gospel. But John was there, and you would think that if John was there, Peter, James, and John up there with the Transfiguration, it would have been this, you know, th this huge placement in the storyline for John. I believe John starts out with the Transfiguration. Like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created Him, and by Him nothing was made that wasn't made, right? Everything was made by God. He sees Jesus as this transfigured person from the beginning of John 1 uh, because this is an important, important part of the ministry of Jesus. He goes up into the mountain. Uh, he sees Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Uh, he has this, uh, this incredible transfiguration. He's shining as bright as the sun. This cloud comes and the voice of God says, this is my beloved son, in who I am well pleased. And it is this point now, it's a turning point. I mean, Jesus has been teaching and preaching and all that sort of thing, but now with the transfiguration, now that the glory of God has come to shine upon Jesus, now that he's got Moses and Elijah giving him you know, their talk or whatever they talked about, now Jesus is now headed on a path to Jerusalem. He now sees, you know, the path before him. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to die. And then he's going to rise again. But this, this is kind of that turning point in the whole story. Now he's headed towards Jerusalem. Um, 
it's, a, it's, it's part of the story of Jesus, a very important part of the story of Jesus. I don't know what Moses and Elijah said to Jesus, but they were there to encourage him. In, the, in scripture, there, there's a word, it's called a theophany. It's basically an appearance of God, right? Uh, so in, in the narrative, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God shows up in a very real way, sometimes as a figure, sometimes as a burning bush, uh, whatever it is that God shows up, that's called a theophany. And there are those uh, who believe that this is also a theophany. It's one of the New Testament theophanies where God shows up and Moses shows up and Elijah shows up. And uh, that's a fancy theological word, theophany. Use that on your friend at some point. <laughs> or don't use it on your friend if you don't want to. <laughs> All right. So, um, but there is, it's, uh, so Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John. It is such a wonderful experience that Peter doesn't want to leave. Of course, Peter, the one who's always bold and wants to you know, do everything, he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, let's build some tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's just stay here for the rest of our life, right? Um, I'm sure if you've been going to church for some time that you've heard the story of the transfiguration and, uh, and, and you know that this is called a mountaintop experience, right? We want to stay here for the rest of our life. God, please let us stay here in this mountaintop. We have Moses. We have Elijah. We have the voice of God. We have you. We're on a mountain. And we've been praying, right? We went up to the mountain to pray. Uh, this, is, this is a connection with God that even though Jesus had been with them, Peter, James, and John had never seen anything like this before. It was a mountaintop experience. The Desert Fathers, um, in, the, in the first century, there were these ascetic monks. They were not monks then, but they were men who went out into the Egyptian desert and they spent their whole time praying and having this connection with God. And uh, they saw this transfiguration, this going up into the mountain to pray and having this mountaintop experience with God is like their example of what we should be doing, right? We should go up into the mountain, we should seek God, we should pray with God and have God fill us with all of the wonder and blessing that God wants to fill with us. It's a mountaintop experience. And um, I'm sure some of you have had mountaintop experiences in your life, right? I remember going to youth retreats in high school and uh, you'd have all your youth friends with you, right? And you'd have these speakers uh, and the speakers would share the word of God. Sometimes we would go to a cabin. Uh, sometimes we would go to a retreat center. Um, but th there was something about getting away from the busyness of life, from school, from conflict, um, you know, from your brothers and sisters. <laughs> Not that, you know, it, but there's something that happens when you go away with a group of Christians and, and study God's word. God's spirit, I believe, is particularly present in those times. And, they, and the revelation of God in your life, because you've taken the time to reflect on God's word and reflect on what God's word means to you in your life, uh, these are incredibly strong mountaintop experiences. Uh, if you haven't experienced one recently, um, you don't have to go with a group of Christian friends, right? You, you could go out in, you know, by yourself and be in the presence of God early in the morning or late at night, or if it's not too hot with the sun, just in the mid-afternoon. 
uh, go to a quiet place, pull out God's word, uh, and just spend some time with God, um, you and yourself, or you with a small group of Christian friends, and and really put the 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 worries and the stress of coronavirus and uh, you know and all the different things that are happening. Please put away the uh, the political infighting that's going away and all the all the incredible. Uh, bad news that comes right on the on the newscasts. Just put all that away and find a quiet place and spend some time with God. Uh, and spend some time with God's Word and His Spirit. Um, and let Him speak to you uh, through God's Word. Let Him share with you His blessings. See the blessings of God. Have a mountaintop experience. And um, to me, this is... It is these experiences that fill me up uh, incredibly. And I, I feel, uh, you know, by the end of the day, you know, your bucket is low. Uh, and then you fall asleep and you wake up in the morning and you go out and you spend time with God. And, and God pours into you immense amounts of blessings. And it's a mountaintop experience. And it's like, oh, Lord, this is so good. Let's stay here forever. I'll build a tent, right? And, and it'll just be me and you and, uh, and a dog named Blue. <laughs> Isn't that from a song somewhere? Uh, just, just uh, Lord, fill me with your blessings and your presence. But uh, we can't stay in the mountaintop. We have to go back and encounter and be in the world and use the blessings that God has poured into you uh, to deal with everything that life is. And, uh, and many, many times life is great, but many, many times there are struggles in life. Uh, and, the, and the power to deal with those struggles comes from the mountaintop experiences. It comes from hearing God's word, studying God's word, going for me into the wilderness and being in the presence of the creator of the wilderness. Uh, these are the things that fill me up and give me strength for living. And I pray that they do that for you also. So um, this is the transfiguration. Uh, it, is, it is a prototype of the resurrection, if you will. Uh, some early Christian authors saw it that way. And uh, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever gone to church on Transfiguration Sunday, which is the last Sunday before Lent, uh, oftentimes you sing a hymn, uh, one of my favorite hymns. "'Tis good, Lord, to be here. Your glory fills the night. Your face and garments like the sun shine with unborrowed light." Tis good, Lord, to be here, your beauty to behold, where Moses and Elijah stand, your messengers of old. Before we taste of death, we see your kingdom come. We long to hold the vision bright and make this hill our home. Tis good, Lord, to be here, yet we may not remain. But since you bid us leave this mount, come with us to the plain. And he does. He walks with us and helps us fight all the battles of life. These, these blessings of God, these appearances of God in our life don't have to be necessarily on a mountaintop. They can happen at a youth retreat. They can happen any time where you just are overwhelmed by the blessing of God at the birth of your children, at a marriage, uh, when, when the girlfriend that you ask to marry you says yes, and you're so excited. I mean, these things... Uh, these things are mountaintop experiences and they're times when God's blessings pour down upon you. 
and they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. I, and I pray that you continue, no matter you know, where you are and what stage in your life, that you have mountaintop experiences in your life because it's that where you're filled with God and then you're filled with the strength to go uh, and fight the battles of life. All right, we're going to go on to verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demons and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, well, why couldn't we drive out this demon? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move it from here and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So again, Jesus is talking about the importance of faith. Um, Jesus says that the disciples, I mean, they were the ones with Jesus. They saw all the miracles. They just saw the transfiguration. They saw him feed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and heal demons. They saw all this. Jesus sent them out with power. And he says, I give you authority, all these demons. Now go out and do it. And they go and this man brings, for whatever reason, the disciples still, it wasn't right for them to be able to do this yet. Um, and Jesus said, it's your, your faith. It's not strong enough yet. Um, but they would get stronger faith because faith grows. I love this image of a tree, that we are a tree and, and that we have a root system and that root system is our faith. You can't see it on the outside, but the bigger the tree, the stronger the tree, the more robust the tree, you know that the roots, that the faith has to be there, right? Because the, the, the bigger the faith, the bigger the tree can grow and the more blessings that tree can give to the world around us. And our faith grows from the time that we start in life as a early baby Christian, right? When that seed of faith is first planted in us, that faith germinates and it sprouts and it grows and it comes out of the ground and it grows stronger and stronger and stronger. And the goal of our life is to continue to build that faith because the stronger the faith, the more you can be a blessing to the world around you. And when the worries and stress and the hurricanes and the storms of life come and even rip off branches from your tree that the tree will not die because of the faith that has continued to grow and the disciples had strong faith there's no question about it but jesus says your faith isn't there yet uh, but we do see in the new testament the disciples doing some amazing things so even though that it's not there yet it gets there and they do have a stronger faith um, and Jesus talks so much about the importance of faith in life. Um, everybody has faith. And the question is, what do you have faith in, right? Some of you may have faith like this coronavirus, right? What is your, where are you putting your faith? And you're putting your faith in the, the people, the medical doctors, you know, and the scientists. You're even to some extent putting your faith into the leaders that are, you know, trying to keep us safe. I mean, and we're, and we're doing what they tell us to because we believe that they're listening to the right people and making the right decisions. 
they're only human. They may make the wrong decisions. The governor may make a wrong decision. Whoever's in charge of Pima County Health Department, uh, I guess that would be the supervisors, right? They might make the wrong decisions as far as how this goes. This is uncharted territory. But um, at some level, somebody has to make a decision about something, and it requires faith to be able to make those decisions because uh, some of these decisions are going to be hard. On one hand, you might have the economy tanking, and on the other hand, you might have people dying from coronavirus. And you have to balance those things and make the decision as best as you can going forward. And, and the people that are making those decisions have faith in something, right? They either have faith in science, they have faith in, the, in the medical doctors, they have faith in the, you know, the economic system, they have faith in the goodness of the people. Um, whatever it is they're putting your faith in, one of the components of faith is that God exists and loves you and loves me. And so the decisions that we make also include God in our faith foundation, right? And I believe that if God is the major part of your faith foundation, if you put God first, if God is the taproot, uh, if God is the one that you turn to in everything in life, uh, all things will work together for good. Um, you know, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added unto, unto you. I don't know how anybody could be a leader at this time in making these decisions if they don't at some level have faith that God is going to get us through this. And if you don't have faith, I, I just don't know how you do it. I don't know how you make it. I guess you make your decisions completely on the basis of science um, and, you know, science is not bad. Science is, you know, is a great thing. But there's a couple things about science. First of all, uh, it is imperfect, right? Because we are imperfect humans. So even though the laws of physics and the laws of science, you know, remain unchanging, our interpretation and our discovery of those laws are not 100% complete yet. And so we are going to make faulty decisions. Uh, and there are, believe it or not, some scientists that maybe making decisions based upon things other than pure science. I know that we want to believe that scientists are as pure as the golden, you know, as the, as the white snow, but some of them may indeed have um, other forces pressing upon them to make the decisions that they're making because they're only human. No, no scientist is perfect. No scientific theory is perfect. Uh, no drug is perfect. The interaction of drugs aren't perfect. Uh, the decisions on when to make, you know, when to open up, I just saw was, you know, we have three models in Pima County and they're all saying different things. Well, which model do you believe? I mean, they all come from scientists, right? Uh, and they all have inputs and outputs and they're saying different things. Which one do you believe? Um, I mean, these are, these are questions about where you put your faith. And I, I certainly trust science, you know, very, very far. I mean, I was a scientist. I was an engineer. I actually, at one point in my life was a modeler, um, but, but all these things are based upon humans' understanding of the world around us, and humans are imperfect. But there is one perfect person, and that is Jesus. And he is the only thing that we should put our trust in first and foremost, uh, and because he will never fail. Models may fail, you know, leaders may fail, scientific theories may fail, all these things may fail, but one thing that will never fail is a God who loves us. And when you can have mountaintop experiences with the God who loves you, you 
uh, are well on your way to having your faith grow and be big and bold and protect you when the storm surges come in life. Let's go on, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So he said this before, a couple chapters ago. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. They're going to, they're going to kill me. I'm going to, but then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And you know, he told the Pharisees, your sign is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was spit out of the whale after three days. So he's been talking about dying. It's not nothing new to the disciples. I'm going to die. This is going to happen. Um, this time, it seems like they may be getting it, right? Yeah, how many times do you have to... How many times do they say you have to say something like in advertising? You have to advertise something like eight times before it kind of hits the brain or something like that. So Jesus is not, uh, he's going to tell them, we're going to find out. He doesn't, this isn't the last time he tells them. It's like, I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. And the disciples are filled with grief. I mean, if he's going to rise again, why would they be filled with grief? Maybe they just hear the death part, right? Because the, the, you know, rise again, he talks, Jesus often talks in, in analogies and parables. So maybe they think that this rising again is, a, is an analogous, you know, rising again. Maybe it's, maybe he's saying I'm going to rise again and that means something different. But Jesus literally meant a literally rising again. He literally meant a literal death. He literally meant being handed over to the authorities. All this stuff he's saying is a literal thing. Uh, and, and they're filled with grief. So it must be getting through to them at some level because now they're filled with grief. Um, so uh, it's not the last time he talks about it. Then we're going to go to uh, verse 24. Um, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect their duties and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So Jesus goes into Capernaum. Uh, as you arrive, my understanding of how this worked is uh, you have roads that come into each city, and sitting at the roads at each of the entrances to the city would be people that would collect tax. So if you're an out-of-towner and you're coming into the city, right? Remember, they didn't have property taxes back then. I mean, they had tax collectors. Capernaum was a business center. So people sometimes would come in from the farms or whatever. They would come into Capernaum uh, and they would do trading and business and all that sort of thing. So around the perimeter, these roads coming in, they would set up people to collect the taxes. Uh, and one of those taxes was this true two drachma temple tax. So as you came into Capernaum, you had to pay the temple tax. And, um, you know, this was for the upkeep of the temple and for the priests and the bread and all that sort of thing. I mean, it was a temple tax. And uh, everybody that came in had to pay this. I mean, this is a Jewish place, right? So you had to pay the Jewish temple tax. And um, so Jesus followed, walks through and the, you know, the guy collecting the tax is like, okay, I'm ready for this temple tax, and Jesus doesn't pay it. Uh, and so he, he calls back on Peter and says, isn't, your, isn't this guy going to pay the temple tax? Peter says, yeah, well, we paid the temple tax. You know, maybe he said, we already paid the temple tax. I don't know. But uh, Peter comes into him, and what Jesus says is fascinating. He says, when you are the king 
of a kingdom. Do the children of the king pay the tax or is the tax paid by everybody else who's not the king? And, and they say, well, of course, it's just for the others. It's not for the, for the people. And he says, well, then we don't necessarily have to pay the temple tax because we are children of the king. We are in the kingdom. We are children of the king. We've been elevated from slave status into a child of the king. We are not required to pay the temple tax. Um, fascinating. Another kingdom thing. Because when you come into the kingdom, you have all the rights and privileges and blessings of the kingdom that are now yours because you're a child of the king, because you're part of the kingdom. Um, but Jesus says, but that's so that we may, I'm going to go on verse 27, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth and you will find a four drachma coin, take it to, and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus says, listen, I don't want to cause offense. It's not the right time to cause offense. I should be, do even though I am not required, you are not required. We are children of the king. It's a new kingdom. This, this, this temple is going to be overthrown. Everything is going to be overthrown. It's all going to become crumbling. Uh, there's a new kingdom and you are now a part of the new kingdom. You don't necessarily need to support the old kingdom. But since we want to do that, uh, we are going to go and fish a fish, open up its mouth and find a four drachma. Now, I'm sure that Peter went out. Uh, it doesn't say, but I'm sure that Peter went out, put out a line, caught the first fish. And when he got the fish, it was a four drachma coin. Um, and then he went and paid the temple tax. I mean, Jesus has some of the funniest ways of doing life. And, uh, you know, I, going out and fishing for a fish and you're opening up the fish and finding a four drachma coin in the fish, that's a pretty strange way to do life. But that's how he chooses to pay the temple tax. Um, I mean, he, there was a hundred other ways to do it, but Jesus chooses to do it this way. It's interesting that um, this, I mean, who are, the, who are the people that Jesus does not like, right? It's the chief priests and the Pharisees. Um, I don't know if there would have been chief priests and Pharisees here. I don't know if they would have been after Jesus. It seems like the ones in Jerusalem were definitely after, after Jesus. This is Capernaum. May not have been uh, on their, you know, Jesus may not have been on their radar. Um, but Jesus basically by paying, this, by paying this temple tax is supporting this whole Old Testament system of law. And he doesn't have to. But on the flip side, these are, you know, the people that this tax goes to are people who serve the temple. Uh, and while Jesus may not be very happy with the ones in Jerusalem, these are people that, you know, have to, have to live also. Uh, and so he does pay the tax. And it, it does bring an interesting point um, about Jesus, uh, about how we have to live in the world. We have to figure out how to navigate, you know, our political enemies and yet the people who are in the system who may not be our political enemies. I mean, the ultimate enemy in all of this thing is Satan, right? Satan who uses the pride of men and the desire for power and the desire for, uh, to ex exercise authority on, over other people, um, that he is the true enemy. Satan is the true enemy. It really, even though he was angry at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were doing what they could. Yes, they got sucked into the power struggle. Yes, they got sucked into the, 
the joy of you know exercising power over other people but ultimately the 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 evil person in this whole story this story of jesus right the love story of jesus the ultimate the ultimate bad guy is one person it's the devil it's satan and it is not necessarily all these other people these other people have um you know they're they're in a system where they're trying to do uh, what they can based upon, you know, where they are in their life. Um, so Jesus pays the drachma tax, uh, even though it's necessary, you know, it's, a, it's not even really, uh, these people uh, are his whipping boy. He's not necessarily happy with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and yet uh, he still doesn't want to cause offense. So Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, but he does pay the tax. And he goes out and he, and he tells Peter to fish for money. <laughs> So pretty, pretty amazing way to collect a tax. Um, but it does point out that Jesus is beginning to see this as a kingdom, right? And he's teaching them it's a kingdom and that he's the king of the kingdom and they're children of the kingdom. And you and I are children of the kingdom with all rights and privileges and blessings. And uh, for that, we are extremely, extremely grateful. Um, and this king had this wonderful experience on the mountaintop where he was transfigured. And uh, this is now, now that he's transfigured, it's like the mantle has been placed on him and now he's going to Jerusalem where he will suffer, die, and rise again for us and fulfill, fulfill a plan that God put into place in the beginning where, where there was the Word and the Word was God and the word, the word was God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And Jesus is that transfigured light. And for him, we thank and praise him for everything. So let's, let's pray. Dear God, uh, you went up to the mountain with your closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and you're transfigured. And the glory of God was on you because you are God. And now you set your path towards Jerusalem to save us and to bring us into your kingdom. For this, we thank and praise you. Continue to be with uh, our leaders as they struggle with all of these nine issues as far as when we should open uh, and how we can do that safely and balance all the different factors that need to be balanced. Uh, be with everybody here on the Bible study. Fill them with your grace and your joy and your peace and your love and your light. This we ask in your name.